All right, let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning, and thank you for the time of year, and we can uh, get excited for and celebrate together. And Lord, we just pray as we uh, come before you, may you be honored and glorified. And Lord, I pray as we hear your word and as we look into your word, I pray that your spirit would teach us that it will be your words that speak to our hearts and our minds. And we lift this time up to you. And we give you praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this past March, uh, Barna Group, it's a very well-known uh, group that does a lot of studies and polls, they, did, uh, they revealed a stu- released a study on doubt and faith. They asked some questions, American, both adults, U.S. adults and teens. And they found out that 52% of U.S. adults or teens have experienced religious doubt over the past few years. They experienced religious doubt. They questioned their beliefs over the last few years years. And if you consider the last few years, it's pretty understandable, right? It's been a pretty tumultuous few years, especially for many people, especially the pandemic. So it's very tumultuous, a lot of stuff going on in the world. What's interesting that they mentioned that since last October, so about a year ago, October 22, they found out that 74% of U.S. adults responded saying that they want to grow spiritually. 74% of U.S. adults. 77% believe in a higher power, and 44% report being more open to God today than before the pandemic. So it's kind of interesting, if you kind of put those two thoughts together, doubting faith is a very common experience. Many people experience doubting or questioning their beliefs or their faith. And it's interesting that while we live in a very corrupt world, right? We live in a pretty evil world, a lot of stuff, bad stuff going on. That it's interesting that most people are searching for spiritual answers. Most people are searching for something spiritual. They're searching for something to believe in, to believe in either a higher power or a higher being other than themselves, Even in this most very self-centered, self-driven world, people are still desiring the spiritual, something bigger than themselves. I was reading within that same study, the same article, they looked at the main reasons people question their faith. And they asked people who don't adhere to any faith, okay, so they don't subscribe or prescribe or believe in any particular faith or they're non-religious they doubt God and some of the main reasons why they doubt God shouldn't be surprising to us some of the most common reasons are negative past experiences with religious institutions okay negative reputation of the church and when it says the church being like Christians in general hypocrisy of religious people and human suffering, right? Those are four of the most common responded reasons why people of no faith doubt the existence of God or they struggle with this idea of God. Negative past experiences, bad reputations, hypocrisy, and human suffering. 
And so I was thinking, you know, I bet these reasons are probably the same reasons why many people end up leaving the church, questioning the Christian faith, doubting God, stop going to church anymore. I bet these are probably the same common reasons why you see a lot of people leaving the church. Bad experiences, bad reputation, hypocrisy, and they can't understand this idea of suffering, considering suffering and this portrayal of a loving God. I was reading an article in Christian Post, and it was titled, Three Reasons Why People Doubt God's Existence. And they cite emotional doubt, moral doubt, and intellectual doubt. What does that look like? Right? Emotional doubt. They start to question things like, why did God let my loved one die? Why did this happen to me? Right? A lot of emotional involvement there, investment in there. Moral doubt. Why is this considered a sin? Why am I not allowed to do this? We can think of many different areas. One of the big areas right now, right? Homosexuality, gender identity. Why is this considered a sin? And that becomes a moral stumbling block for many. An intellectual doubt. Doesn't the Bible contradict science? How do we reconcile science and the Bible? Is the, rex- the resurrection is impossible. So a lot of people have intellectual doubt because they can't make sense of certain things. And so last week we started addressing some of these questions, right? If God exists, why is there evil? If God exists, why is there suffering? If God is a good God or a loving God, then why am I suffering? Why is my loved one suffering? We look around the world, why did he allow these certain things to take place? And I mentioned that, you know, to answer these questions, it's not just a simple question. I mean, it can be. But answering these questions requires a lot of humility. Humility and time. Why do I say humility? Because we need to tackle them, right? We need to address them, especially if many people are exiting the church. They're leaving the faith because they can't reconcile these questions. But I, I prefaced it last week in saying, trying to find answers to these questions may not feel satisfying right? Trying to figure out the answers to these questions may not feel satisfying. The answers that we may have may not necessarily feel good to us in the moment, in the time, because some people choose to only believe what makes them feel good, right? They're searching for answers that'll make them feel good about the questions that they have, But just because you you search for things that will make you feel good, that's kind of an empty philosophy to chase after. To only believe in what will make you feel good. Or you may think it makes you feel good, but it really is an empty pursuit. What is clear is that God wants to be known. The God of the Bible wants to be known. He's not a complete enigma He's not a mystery that he says, you know what, You'll, you can search for me, but you can't really know for sure. God wants to be known. He wants us to know him and understand him. And that's why this has been the main, one of the main focuses as we look in our study. It's to understand God. What is God telling us about himself in Scripture? 
And how can we understand our life and who we are as we understand God? And especially for those of us here who may be struggling with your faith, you're questioning, you're doubting, especially for some of those reasons. You had bad experiences. You look at the people that call themselves Christians, you see hypocrisy, or you've, you experience suffering in your life or in the loved ones around you, or you look at the, mor- the morality around the world, and you say, if this God exists, why is this all happening? I want to encourage you if that's you today. And I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you're wrestling with this. I'm glad you're not just like out there just saying, forget it. I'm going to wander around. I'm going to find it myself. I'm glad you're not just like saying, forget it. And I want to encourage you to say, you know what? It may take some time for you to reconcile some of the questions that you may have. But I want to encourage you that this is the best source credible source to find the answers that you're seeking and i encourage you to stay i don't know how much time it will take you to reconcile some of those things but i'm glad you're here and i want to preface it but i have no agenda here either right i have no personal agenda for you i'm not trying to convince you to something that like suits me right my only agenda is that you know i'm going to do my best to preach the truth of God's word to you. I have no agenda. I have no, I'm not selling you anything, right? So just to kind of clarify that. So I'm glad you're here, and we're going to tackle some of those answers as we go along in our study. Now, how many of you, you ever experienced something so offensive that someone did to you that you just wanted to completely cut them off of your life? You don't have to raise your hands, right? But how many have ever experienced that? Someone did something to you that was so offensive that you just wanted to cut them out of your life, right? Perhaps you can relate to something like that. And if you haven't, I imagine in your mind you can think of something that there's a line that if someone crosses, that's it. No more, right? Your mercy ends there, we can be kind of short on mercy, but quick to call for it. I don't know if you've ever had an enemy and someone does something so bad, you were like wanting to call fire down from heaven and strike them dead, you know? Again, don't raise your hands if you can relate. For the record, I can't recall any moment that I asked God to call fire down on anybody. I don't think I've done that, right? But we've all probably reached a limit of mercy, Right? And we should all be very thankful that we are not God, right? I want you to turn to somebody sitting next to you and say, I'm sure glad you're not God. (laughs) Some of you are so polite, you didn't want to be offensive, and you just looked at each other and smiled and said, okay, yeah, right? Turn to somebody, maybe the same person, and say, then be glad I'm not either. We're all glad that we are not God, and God's level of mercy is not our own, right? We're certainly glad about that. But what about God? Does God have a limit of his mercy? Is there a breaking point for God where he says, enough is enough? 
Well, Scripture is clear that God does have a limit to where he says enough is enough. And we're starting to see the first sign of that in Genesis 6. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. And we've been looking at this point in Genesis 6, what the, the state of the world. And we saw that the world was marked by continuously evil thoughts. The world was exceedingly evil. In Genesis chapter 5, we see that. There was also violence and corruption. Right? Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. It was corrupt because all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. So the world at this time was evil continuously, exceedingly evil. It was violent and it had been corrupted. And we saw last week God's response to the evil he saw on the earth. He looked upon the earth and what was his response? Verse 6, the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now, it doesn't mean that God literally has a heart like we do that pumps, right? When it refers to the heart, it's talking about the inner being, right? So it's not literally God has a pumping heart, his inner being, right? The heart becomes symbolic, you get it, right? But he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord confirms this when he speaks of himself in verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created. Why? For I'm sorry that I've made them. And this description of God may be surprising to us. We, don't, we may not necessarily think of God in this way that God would grieve in his heart. But indeed, God says, for I'm sorry that I made them. I'm sorry I'm grieved in my heart that all of his creation had been corrupted by what? Man's sinfulness. And that word for sorry is not just saying, oh, I feel sad, right? But it implies a change of course of action. He was grieved to the point of expressing a change of course of action. For I'm sorry that I have made them. What is God saying when he says that? Does that mean that God did something wrong? It doesn't mean that he did something wrong. It's not saying that God had sinned or he'd made, he did wrongdoing. It's simply expressing a grievance and said there's going to be a change of course of action. Well, how do you reconcile that? You can know something, is, something bad is going to happen, allow it to happen, and still experience regret and sorrow that it happened, Right? Anyone could relate to that? I think some parents probably can identify this right away, right? When you're, if you have children, right? You, exp- you know something bad is going to happen, but you allow it to happen. And when you see the consequences of it, as a parent, you regret, you're, you're saddened that it happened. You wish you would have done something different, but you knew that that was the right decision to make. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Parents, you could probably relate to it. You tell your kids, don't do this. And they insist, let me do it 
my way. I want to do it as I want to do it. And you allow them to, knowing that they're going to experience the consequence of their decision. And when you see the pain that may, they may experience, you feel it, right? If you're a loving parent, you're not cold and say, I told you so. Now go deal with it yourself. You feel the pain. But you knew that for them to learn, you had to let them go through it. And you wish you would have done something different so they didn't experience what, you, what they experienced. But at the same time, you say, you know what? It was the right thing to do. What I mean by that analogy, I'm not def- defining God by our experiences, but the exact opposite. We can relate to this because we've under- we can understand that and we understand our circumstances as we understand God. You get what I'm saying? It's not the other way around. We're not defining God by our experiences, but we're understanding our experiences as we understand God. God was going to wipe clean the sinfulness of man. So his response, he was sorry, he was grieved, and God was going to wipe clean the sinfulness of man and bring ruin to what man had ruined. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky. That word blot out gives us impression of wiping clean, right? Verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So God's response to the sinfulness of man is, I'm going to wipe it all clean, bring to ruin what man has ruined. And we can end the story there, right? The story could end right there. God easily could have said, you know what? Enough is enough. I'm going to destroy it all, wipe it all clean, and just start all over. Just renew everything else, right? God could have done that. He could have just created a new earth. I remember, I don't know, playing video games when the Nintendo system came out, right? You play video games, and when things aren't going well when you're playing your game, there was a convenient button on the console. You know what that button was? It was a reset button. And I can't tell you how many times when my game wasn't going well, what did I do? Press that reset button. All right, let's just start it all over and do it again. And I hit the same spot in the game, and what did I do? I hit that reset button again. A lot of times we think that way. If you get a virus in the computer, what do you want? Sometimes you want to do it. Let me just wipe it all clean and start fresh that way. And if we're being honest, maybe sometimes we may feel like we wish God would have done that, right? Uh, I mentioned, talked to someone earlier about my, my affections towards rats. I wouldn't have minded if God would have just eradicated mice and rats at the flood. I can't say I wouldn't have minded that. Maybe you feel that way about spiders. Whatever. Why did God keep spiders around or any of those kind of things? That story could have ended right there. God could have said, all right, I'm taking it, I'm restarting everything over. Creating new humans, creating new creatures. Why didn't God just do that? Well, a complete restart. You know, when I thought about that, if God would have just wiped everything out, created a new earth, created new humans, created new people, to me, that imp- this is to me, and there's no biblical verse to this, but to me, my impression would be then, then perhaps what God created was not very good. 
Maybe that's almost like an admission of, I didn't do it right the first time. If I destroyed it all and did it new again. So I was kind of thinking about that. Why didn't God just do it all over again differently? And it would seem that it would contradict what God described as creation from the beginning. When God created and he looked upon his creation, he said it was very good. There was nothing wrong with what God created. God did not create evil. And the opportunity to disobey is not evil unless there was no alternative. Right? You follow me? The opportunity to create evil isn't evil in itself. We'll get to that in another message. But God has every right to create and dictate whatever he wants. I don't think we can question that. But what God chose to do and how he chose to deal with the sinfulness of man, he says, I'm going to wash it all away. I'm going to wash away the sinfulness from the land. And some of you may, how many of you are animal lovers? Animal lovers? Only one? That's weird. Some of you may ask, well, why the animals? Why the cute animals? I mean, what did a giraffe ever do to somebody, right? Perhaps, I was thinking about this too, perhaps it's like what Paul mentions in Romans 1. I don't have it up on the screen. I don't even know if the screens are up, but anyways, is it up? Okay, all right. In Romans 1, Paul talks about how no man is without excuse of of acknowledging God. And in verse 21, he says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 23, And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. We covered this passage some time ago. In other words, people began to worship in creation rather than God himself. And God gave them over to their darkened minds. God gave them over to their desires. Verse 25, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Remember, the first audience to read this, to hear this, is the Israelites, right? They're coming out of Egypt, a culture that was worshiping all of creation, worshiping all these animals, these demigods of half animal, half human or beings, right? So they're leaving this culture. So it would resonate in their minds to remember that God, there is only one true God, and he is above all creation, And these animals are not to be worshipped. That man has corrupted the image of what God had created. So it kind of makes sense. That not only is God showing that I am above all these things that I had created. I am the giver of life and I am the one who sustains life. I am the God of both mercy and and justice. So perhaps the reason why is because man corrupted the image of animals and God set a precedent 
of saving a remnant. Again, he didn't wipe out all the animals clean either. He said, Let's, let me save some animals. Verse 8, God had a bigger plan. Why not a complete restart? He had a plan for life. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a, finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in, in, the side of it, in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Verse 17. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. From under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible and gather it to yourself and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Summary. God is going to bring judgment. And he's going to use the flood waters to bring judgment. A very appropriate image of washing away clean, right? I mentioned some time ago a prominent theme throughout the first three chapters of Genesis. I don't know if you remember. A prominent theme throughout the first three chapters of Genesis was what? I'm not going to ask you to guess. Life. Life was a prominent theme throughout these books of Genesis so far. Think about it. Chapter 1, God creates life, right? Chapter 2, not only does he commission Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, but he brings together this relationship, this marriage relationship, this means in which to perpetuate life. Even in chapter 3, what was chapter 3? That's when they disobeyed, right? They disobeyed God. But even in chapter 3, chapter 2 and chapter 3, what do we see? Not only the tree of life, but even after they disobeyed, what did God do? He allowed them to continue to live, to carry out what he told them they could do, be fruitful and multiply. But what did he say? It's going to come with some hardship now. It's going to come with pain now. 
And God, to protect them, said, you can't be in the garden where the tree of life is. So life continues to be. Chapter 4, we see the taking of life, but God's still providing life in another son in Seth. Chapter 5, we see life continue on in the genealogies. And so then here we see in chapter 6, at the peak of evil, at the peak and the culmination of how evil man can be, still God provides a means for life. God instructs Noah to build an ark with specific measurements, with specific materials to use, use three levels, make rooms or nests up there, make a window at the top, a door on the side, cover it inside and out with pitch. So make sure that this vessel is going to be secure. God will not only save Noah and his family, but God is also going to save the animals. Two of every kind, male and female. Why male and female? So that they can continue life, right? The picture of God delivering these animals is very reminiscent of creation account, right? Remember in day four, God created the vegetation for food. God provided food so that the animals and man and woman can live. Day five, God created the marine life and the flying creatures, Day six, God created the land animals, living creatures after their kind, cattle, creeping things, beasts of the earth, and man and woman. And then what did we see in chapter two? God was going to say, I'm going to provide a helper for man. So what does he do? He creates the animals. He brings the animals to Adam. Adam calls them and names them. But the helper ultimately was what? Was who? Woman, right? But here now, God is bringing the animals to Noah to lead them into the ark to allow them to continue to live. And God emphasizes he's bringing the animals to keep them alive, so provide sustenance for them. Go out and get enough food for all the animals. So God even preserves the animals. And it's kind of interesting. We think, well, how can all the animals fit into the ark? Well, I think we assume that they're all full-grown adult animals. Adult animals, right? They could have been little animals. They're little baby giraffes. It'll be kind of cute, right? Little baby, I don't know why I keep saying giraffes. Elephants, hyenas, I don't know, right? Whatever it is, they're little baby ones, cubs coming up in the ark. That could very well be, right? But there's something very important that God mentions to Noah. In verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you. This theme of covenant is going to be a central theme throughout Scripture. We'll touch on more of that next week. So you think, well, now what do we know about Noah? Look how Noah is described. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word found, to find, to secure, acquire, to learn. He he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word for favor or grace, acceptance. Noah found God's favor, his grace. 
Now, God did not show favor upon Noah just randomly, right? It's not like he picked Noah out of a hat of a bunch of people. So, I don't know, let me just pick this guy. He didn't win the lottery. But notice the emphasis on Noah's life and character. We could have like just, he could have just like not included this information, right? But notice what is emphasized with, God, with Noah's life. We see four qualities of Noah here and a fifth one added in Hebrews. What's the first quality? He was righteous. Noah did what was right before God. And this is emphasized in chapter 7, verse 1, where God says, For you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You alone have I seen that was righteous before me in this time. Well, the other thing we see in verse 9, that he was blameless in his time. In other words, he maintained his integrity. He was unimpaired by the evil that was going on around him. He maintained his integrity. What else does we see? He walked with God in verse 9. We see this for the second time, right? The first time we saw it with Enoch in chapter 5. But here we see that Noah had fellowship with God. He had relationship with God. And then we see in verse, verse 22, he was obedient. Noah did according to all that God had commanded, so he did. Notice in verse 22, it's emphasized twice. Noah did what all God commanded to do, so he did. Noah was obedient to God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So here Hebrews highlights Noah's faith. Noah displayed his faith in God that what God was telling him was true. That what God told Noah was going to happen, Noah had the faith to believe God that that was going to happen and he obeyed accordingly. By faith, Noah built this vessel of judgment and mercy. I think we take this for granted. Can you imagine if God gave us some kind of word like that? I think we'd freak out a little bit, right? Think about the conditions. Now, to clarify, right? When we see that Noah was righteous, it doesn't mean that he was sinless. It's not what it's saying. Noah was not sinless, nor was he perfect. Right? That's not what it's saying. Righteous does not mean here that he was perfect. God showed favor to Noah because he saw him as righteous, right? But it doesn't mean he was perfect, nor was he sinless. But think about the conditions in which Noah obeyed God. When the world around him was becoming more violent, more evil... He stayed and he walked with God. He maintained his integrity. His character and his faith is most evident in his obedience. When God warned Noah, judgment is coming upon all the earth and all of mankind. Build this big vessel 
and I'm going to bring all the animals into it. It takes faith to say, hmm, build a huge sailing vessel or floating vessel, and you're going to bring animals into the ark, and you're going to save me and my family? How many of us would say, okay, I'll do that, God? It takes a lot of faith. I think Noah is very an underestimated character in Scripture. Right, when you talk about these heroes of faith, but for Noah, he obeyed God. 2 Peter 2.5 describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. Think about it. He's building this ark. I'm sure people ask, even his family ask, why are you building this for? God said he is bringing judgment upon the earth for man's sinfulness. How many times do you think they laughed at him, mocked him, what are you doing? You're nuts. Maybe Noah was like the neighborhood like crazy guy. But what he was doing was a message of righteousness in an evil generation. God shows Noah favor. He shows grace in response. It's interesting. Psalm 84, 11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 echo the same message. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives his grace in response Let's not mistaken, God is the giver of grace. He can give grace to whomever he wants. We don't earn it. It's not that like we can attain to some goodness that we can earn God's favor and grace. But scriptures clearly, he shows that he responds as well. He gives grace to those who walk uprightly. He gives grace to those who are humble before him. Now, as I mentioned, God may not ask us to build an ark. Right? Thank God. I don't know how many of us would have the faith to believe that part, right? But I still believe God needs a generation to stand faithful for him in the world we're living in, too. Right? As I mentioned, as, as we look around in our world and, and we see how evil seems to be more flamboyant and more out on the open, and more deceitful. I still believe God is still needing, or desiring, I should say, people in this evil generation who will be faithful, who will be obedient, who will be willing to be righteous before God in the generation we live in, to be able to be someone of integrity, Do we have that faith to trust God and say, God, what you require me to do goes against contrary to everything around me, the world around me, what I see everybody else doing. Can I have the faith and trust in you to stand against that, to not go along, to not be swept away? 
Can I trust you that you desire a better good for me than what they say they can give me? Can I trust you? Do I have the faith to stand righteous before you? Not our own righteousness, right? As believers of Christ, we know that. And we'll get into that more next week. But can I be faithful to you in this generation now? I may not have to build an ark, but maybe it's just more simple than that. Noah walked with God. That must be key to his character. That must have been really key, that Noah walked with God. He had close relationship with God, that no matter what was around them, no greater influence to Noah than God himself. And I want to encourage us with that. That the theme of the ark and the flood, yeah, we see the judgment, but I think a more prevailing theme is life. God's mercy. He had to wash away the sinfulness of man so that real life can continue. Godliness can be seen and found. Next week, we're going to look at Noah's role more closely and see how it relates to Christmas. You think, okay, the flood is not generally seen as a Christmas message, right? But we're going to see how this story relates to the Christmas message next week. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you, and before we take up communion together, we just want to be reminded of your mercy, reminded of your love, your faithfulness, your holiness. And Lord, we recognize that in this world, there's a lot of adversity, a lot of hardship, a lot of suffering. And there's many reasons people can think of to question and doubt who you are, your existence, your love, your character. But Lord, you remind us of how good you are, your faithfulness and your mercies. And I pray if there's someone struggling with doubt, you would... Let them know clearly that you see them. You also grieve, but that you love them and desire relationship with them, Lord. We thank you, Father, and give you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.